This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with the authors, Professor William Darity and Ms. Kristen Mullen, their recent book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Professor Darity, Ms. Mullen, welcome to the program. Thank you Thank very you. much. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a, it's a privilege for me. Thank you again. Professor Darity and Ms. Mullen's bios are posted on the podcast website. On background, as listeners are well aware, social determinants significantly explain one's health as much as 80%. Principally among these is economic status. As listeners are likely aware, the U.S. suffers significant economic inequality and as a result, equally significant health disparities. For example, over the past year, the number of U.S. billionaires increased by 6% or to 650 and their combined wealth during the worst economic crisis since the 1930s increased 33% or to $4 trillion again over this past year. Today, the top 1% of Americans own 40% of the country's wealth, or more than the bottom 90% in some. The top 20%, 90% of wealth, leaving 10% for the remaining 80%. U.S. economic inequality and the pronounced adverse effects it has on U.S. population health is largely due to a long and continuing history of racial discrimination, principally our 250-year history of slavery. Among numerous related statistics the authors note in their work, median black household net worth today is one-tenth that of whites, due in part to blacks having comparative lower rates of upward mobility and higher rates of downward mobility. In October, the New England Journal of Medicine, published since 1812, finally addressed this issue by posting in October a prospective essay by Mary Bassett, and her colleagues at the Harvard Center on Health and Human Rights concerning reparations. In it, the authors concluded, it is left to us in medicine and public health to argue that now is the time to act, close quote, because, quote, addressing the black-white wealth gap through reparations, they wrote further, is, quote-unquote, about saving lives. So that is a somewhat lengthy background introduction First, let me say and admit I have no excuse for not discussing this topic several years ago, so I'll candidly note that up front. Your work um, is substantially an accounting of antebellum slavery, Lincoln's emancipation efforts, Johnson, Grant, and the Radical Republicans' largely failed Reconstruction efforts that led to black codes in the former Confederate states, white terrorism, Jim Crow, and now we term American apartheid. In this discussion, though, you note several compensated emancipation efforts. For example, the Congress, just prior to the war, Civil War, adopted a related resolution. Lincoln had several efforts in 61 and 62 for compensated emancipation. General Sherman had his 1865 Special Field Order Number 15. And the Second Freedmen's Bureau Bill also called for reparations. So, I do think it's important to note that this is a long-standing effort. So can you explain some of these important reparation efforts that were considered or attempted at about that time? Well, Kirsten and I uh, 
introduce a, an extended discussion of the history of reparations movements in the United States in the first chapter of our book. And uh, we focus first on one of the central points, which is the formerly enslaved and their ancestors were the primary abolitionists in the first place, that uh, abolition of slavery was something that was attempted from the onset of the process of being forced into captivity uh, on the African coast. Uh, so the first abolitionists were the persons who were enslaved. And virtually at the same time as the process of enslavement began, particularly in the United States, States, uh, you had a situation in which people were imagining a world in which enslavement no longer existed, and some form of restitution had been provided to the formerly enslaved. Uh, the first significant policy move in this direction is, as you mentioned, what took place at the uh, toward the end of the Civil War when uh, General William T. Sherman at the uh, at the site of his his completion of his march through Georgia, Savannah, introduces Special Field Orders Number 15, which was intended to provide the formerly enslaved with 40-acre land grants as redress for their years of bondage. Uh, that process was eliminated or terminated by President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, and uh, in a sense, the rest is history. Uh, so, and, you know, Kirsten can talk a bit about the extension of the effort for reparations beyond the period in which the 40 acres were denied that had been promised to the formerly enslaved. So, so uh, yes. So when you move forward in history, um, one of the key uh, proponents for reparations in the black community was Callie Hout. And this is a woman who had herself been born enslaved and who lobbied tirelessly for the federal government to provide pensions to the formerly enslaved, just as the, uh, the federal government had provided pensions for the veterans of the Civil, uh, the Civil War. Uh, she eventually um, comes to found an organization that did just that. You know, they, were, they were both trying to identify these individuals, and um, she eventually uh, creates a membership organization that has over 300,000 individuals uh, who were paid members, and uh, they also were uh, providing you know, funds for uh, catastrophic illnesses and burial uh, funds for their membership. Uh, but ultimately, they were not successful. Uh, in fact, um, uh, she was brought up on mail fraud charges, uh, which uh, uh, is also kind of the outcome for the next wave, which was Marcus Garvey. Um, you know, some of the people who were uh, who were associated with Callie House joined the Marcus Garvey's movement. And, you know, many people think about Garvey as only um, being focused on, you know, repatriating Black Americans to the African continent. But in fact, he, too, was interested in, um, you know, advocating and lobbying the U.S. government for restitution for Black Americans. Um, moving forward, still we have uh, Queen um, Audley Moore, Queen Mother Audley Moore, who was very active in uh, the reparations movement and also worked with the UN to bring this concern to worldwide attention. 
but but she too was not successful. Um, coming further still, you have the Republic of North of um, of North of New Africa movement that was advocating for you know uh, land to be set aside within the continental U.S. Uh, for the exclusive use of Black Americans. Uh, that effort also uh, was unsuccessful. Uh, then coming forward, so you have, um, you know, some, some efforts on both sides. Um, some of your, uh, your listeners may recall David Horowitz, um, uh, an author and provocateur who um, had placed in the college newspapers of a number of elite schools across the country an advertisement um, opposing reparations. Uh, that, among other uh, incendiary ideas, uh, you know, indicated that slavery was a good thing uh, for Black Americans. Uh, he also uh, insisted that if reparations were due, and he thought perhaps they they should have been paid, but only to um, individuals who had endured uh, the institution of slavery um, and you know, their immediate uh, descendants, but not present-day Americans. But, you know, our efforts focus not just on slavery reparations, the fact that the term that we try really hard not to use, but also, as you said in the introduction, on two additional epochs of American history, um, nearly 100 years of legal segregation in the United States, which, um, you know, included many uh, uh, episodes of white terrorism in the black community that resulted in uh, both the loss of lives and injuries to Black Americans, but also the loss of their property, loss and confiscation of their property, and the the, the current period, the moment that we're in now, the post Civil Rights Act era uh, to the present, where we're still seeing um, mass incarceration of Black people, anti-Black police violence, discrimination in housing and credit and employment, and of course this yawning racial wealth gap. Okay, thank you. So again, there is there were numerous efforts over many uh, uh, decades, centuries, in fact, as uh, Professor Darity, you suggest, uh, at trying to achieve this. You do note in your book a few instances, additional instances more at the state level, although there one federal level where there was success. Uh, so you do note in your volume uh, Rosewood, Florida reparations. The more recent uh, Pickford versus Glickman Department of Ag uh, settlement, and then others at the state level that, uh, although supported, ultimately failed. The Tulsa Riot Commission, the Wilmington Race Riot Commission, and others. Um, so there is, there has been some limited success, and you do note as well, there have been reparations paid um, uh, to uh, Japanese Americans who were interned. And then both here and in Germany, uh, there are reparations paid to uh, Jews or Holocaust survivors. Can you, can you, uh, I'm particularly interested in, in the successful ones. So possibly, uh, the Rosewood, Florida and the, and the U.S. Ag suit. So neither one of these particular success stories were all that successful in the sense that, um, there was not, uh, a significant amount of compensation that was provided to the victims. Uh, the only compensation uh, that went to the victims went ultimately in the Rosewood case to nine claimants uh, who received, I guess, 
what the approximate amount about about fifty to hundred thousand dollars uh and this is in an instance where the entire black community of rosewood florida had been gutted in 1923 there were numbers of people who uh who survived but had to flee as refugees uh i think none of them received any compensation so it was only folks who were still residing in florida who received some form of compensation, which was uh, was extremely limited. Uh, I, I think that in general, in terms of all of these local cases or piecemeal cases, it becomes impossible to meet the full bill for reparations. From our perspective, the full bill for reparations must be paid to eliminate the racial wealth differential in the following sense. Uh, black American descendants of U.S. slavery constitute about 13% of the nation's population, but only possess about 2.5% of the nation's wealth. And the objective of a reparations plan, an effective reparations plan, must be to bring the black share of, uh, of wealth into conformity with the black share of the nation's population. And this is because the wealth differential best captures the cumulative intergenerational effects, uh, economic effects of, of white supremacy in the United States. So if we are going to actually pursue true justice, we have to focus on eliminating the racial wealth disparity in its entirety. Uh, and so, um, as, as a consequence, it's, it's not something that can be accomplished by states and localities, even if they are addressing particular atrocities that occurred within their borders. Uh, the total budgets for all state and local governments in the United States constitutes about $3.1 trillion dollars. To eliminate the racial wealth differential would require somewhere in the vicinity of at least 10 to $12 trillion. So the states and localities working singly or in combination cannot meet the bill. Uh, plus, it is the federal government that is the culpable party that should have responsibility for meeting the bill because it's the federal government that allowed a legal system to exist that permitted slavery that permitted nearly a century of legal segregation in the United States and that turned a blind eye to the waves of massacres that took place throughout the state of Florida, throughout the nation as a whole, including the Rosewood case, uh, all of which have not been compensated at all with the minor exception of the Rosewood case. Okay, thank you. My my intention of that question is to say that reparations, however limited and meager, are not unprecedented. So there are some uh, limited, albeit uh, anemic, uh, examples, as as you note. I, I do want to just take up for a well, moment. We we don't we, we don't think that the uh, we don't think that the German reparations or the Japanese American reparations were anemic. Uh, and we certainly think that the Japanese American reparations is an important pre uh, precedent for Black American reparations. What we what we what we do think is anemic is the response to the individual cases of massacres that have taken place throughout the United States, and, and we've ultimately reached the conclusion that they too need to be part 
of the compensation that the federal government provides. Okay, uh, thank you. And relative to um, uh, Ms. Holmes' comment previously about white terrorism, you do note several of these uh, episodes and you do identify these groups, I thought, uh, quite interesting, these uh, so-called democratic clubs, the Innocents, the Red Shirts, the White League, the Knights of the White Camellia, and of course the Klan, the KKK. So that uh, tragic history is, is noted. If we could spend, I'd like to ask you for a moment about um, Reconstruction, uh, the so-called uh, uh, Seven Mystic Years, because of course uh, I think it's important to provide clarity relative to um, uh, progress made during that 10, 11 year period. Moreover, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Lincoln's successor, Johnson, the vice president from Tennessee in 65, you used the phrase at one point in the book that ostensibly the North, for example, or the radical Republicans lost the war during the peace. And you document in detail, uh, Johnson's, uh, view relative to uh, what the um, uh, radical Republicans wanted to accomplish in the South after the war. Uh, for example, Johnson, amongst other things, vetoed the Second Freedmen's Bureau Bill, amongst other things. So if you can uh, provide a little uh, a perspective or overview relative to um, the historical fact that at least Lincoln's intentions for Reconstruction were not even closely realized. Yeah. So I'll start... Uh, those seven mystic years, and that's the term that W.E.B. Du Bois coined for the period, you know, roughly 1866 to 1873. Uh, and this is a period when, you know, the United States actually had a moment when um, blacks and whites co-governed. Um, you had elected black male officials, especially in the South. Um, and those legislators um, did a number of things that were unprecedented. Um, they... Uh, uh, passed legislation creating public education. Uh, this was the first time that even white children in the South um, were eligible, you know, uh, at public schools that they could attend. Um, now, now, the schools were not integrated. You know, they were, you know, two separate streams. But those uh, black and white governmental groups in the South, um, many of them pushed for equal appropriations for school building construction and also for teacher pay. And you had, um, you know, a significant a number of cities, major cities, especially in the South, where this was happening. One of the the, the last uh, uh, one of the last um, outposts would have been Wilmington, North Carolina, where in 1898 there was a coup. Um, you had um, uh, you know, white folks. You had coalition of uh, Republican. Uh, you know, Republican-leaning folks, black and white, uh, who were partnering with the farmers, uh, white farmers, the populace, and uh, forming what was called the fusion movement. And, uh, you know, they began to have success uh, for the first time and winning, you know, after the Civil War and winning elections that formerly would have been won by the Democrats. But, um, you know, this was not something that the Democrats uh, took line down, and they, um, you know, attacked uh, uh, these coalition groups. I mean, physically, uh, there were several days of rioting. 
the black newspapers burned to the ground, significant part of the black business district and uh, residential district were burned to the ground. Um, you know, uh, Wilmington had been a majority black city. It becomes a minority black city at this point. Um, you know, they're you know, probably negligible, if any, black elected officials. And so we're going into, you know, the 20th century with a very different kind of world. Um, and I think, you know, it was a cautionary tale for other cities that were attempting anything of the like. But, um, but yes, it was a, a, a very mystical uh, period, as Du Bois said, when, you know, the kind of, of uh, republic that many black people and, and some white uh, desired had actually occurred. Okay, thank you. you. You commented earlier that America ostensibly is not, and you note this in the book, has not transcended racism. So uh, subsequent uh, to the Civil War and Reconstruction era, we had uh, Jim Crow laws, and uh, through the subsequent, you know, 100-odd approximate years, um, you do mention, and this got a lot of attention per uh, Tanahishi's uh, uh, Coates's, uh, uh 2014 Atlantic uh, article having to do with um, African-Americans or blacks being denied credit worthiness, uh, generally uh, relative to their ability to become um, by property or own land. Could you um, comment on that? You also mentioned other more uh, current uh, problems or issues uh, relative to our inability to transcend racism. You know, um, for example, student expenditures on education, uh, police shootings, uh, I mentioned uh, real estate issues or the contract buying schemes, uh, high rates of incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so these these types or examples persist or have persisted uh, and resulting in where we are today relative to, as Professor Darity said, uh, disparities in, in income inequality. Can you highlight some of these for me? David, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we know that in the um, in the years immediately uh, following the Civil War, one of the ways that the federal government assisted Americans uh, in wealth development, asset building, was uh, through the creation of the Homestead Act, which started in 1862. So while you had you know, the newly emancipated slaves being denied 40-acre land grants um, in the South, you had white Americans, uh, including recently, um, you know, folks who had recently immigrated from Europe who were given 160-acre land grants in the Western territories. Uh, so this is, you know, this is a land area that had only recently been occupied by Native Americans, by indigenous people. So you've got, you know, black people receiving, uh, being promised and then ultimately uh, receiving zero, uh, you know, receiving nothing, and white Americans receiving 160-acre land grants. And so we know this was the beginning of the racial wealth gap. And this is a program that uh, was created by the federal government. So when you come to the 21st century, you're looking at a very different kind of scheme that the federal government has put in place to assist uh, citizens with uh, wealth building, and that is home ownership. You have the GI Bill, which um, was awarded to you know, veterans coming back from, uh, from World War II, and this is money that they could use uh, both to uh, advance their education, their formal education, but also to make down payments on homes. And the federal government also uh, was making mortgage insurance available to them uh, to make it easier for them to step into this middle-class life. But we know that in the South, 
these kinds of programs were not available to white people. Federal programs, but they were uh, the South was allowed to administer the programs as they saw fit. And for the most part, the South uh, saw fit to exclude black people. Uh, we know that our colleague Ira Katz Nelson, uh, in his book, When Affirmative Action Was White, has confirmed that at one point during the 1940s in Mississippi, several thousand white Americans received uh, the benefits of the GI Bill and only two black people did so. So it was an incredibly uh, helpful assist to white Americans. I mean, we absolutely don't begrudge them that leg up. We think that's what government should be doing for its citizens. But we believe that they also should have benefited black Americans. You mentioned the, the research of Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, that was published in the Atlantic Monthly. So yes, I mean, he was looking especially at Chicago mm-hmm. um, and how redlining uh, was used. And this is a process that the federal government and banks uh, colluded to exclude communities where black people were living uh, or, or in some cases to designate uh, areas where they would be forced to live. I mean, we learned that in 1928, Austin, Texas, for example, uh, the city council and planning department determined that they would push all of the black residents in the city into the eastern quadrant of the city, forcibly if necessary. And in fact, the majority of the black people in Austin still live in East Austin. So these, again, were, you know, very systematic, focused, um, you know, projects uh, of city and state governments that resulted in uh, both the devaluation of black property, um, the uh, determination to ghettoize black people in these communities, and to make sure that the homes that they did purchase did not um, appreciate in value uh, in the same ways that the homes that white Americans uh, were living in would appreciate. I think that the federal government's major asset building initiatives in the late 19th century were focused on land acquisition. In the 20th century, the emphasis shifts to home ownership. And so, as Kirsten pointed out, there are a number of ways in which uh, home ownership opportunities were boosted for white Americans while they were repressed for black Americans. And in addition to the conditions that she's talking about here, I would want to add uh, the New Deal legislation that was introduced with uh, subsidies for home ownership uh, that was discriminatorily applied. And similarly, the GI Bill, which was perhaps the most important legislation to promote social mobility in the 20th century in the United States, which also was discriminatorily applied to such an extent that in the state of Mississippi, out of approximately 3,000 returning veterans from World War II, only two black veterans received any of the benefits associated with the home subsidy provisions of the GI Bill. Yes, yeah, so thank you. I appreciate your mentioning uh, that. Uh, and that reminds me of a, a note you made in the book, which is 20% of adults' wealth is due directly to transfers of inheritances and gifts. So if the prior generation is not accumulating wealth through uh, land or real estate, uh, that goes a long way in explaining why we are where we are. So let's go to 
where we are today with our time remaining. Um, I, I would like, and, and Professor Darity, you did get into uh, the amount of money, so I do want to get into the question of how reparations would be calculated and structured. But before I do, um, I do want to mention there's been a resolution in the House uh, that's been proposed for many years. I, I do want to ask you your take on it. Uh, um, this is H.R. 40. Uh, that's been proposed every session for several years now. But also, I would like to get into, I think your next to last chapter discusses responses to common criticisms. And I'll just note a few of these. And I'd like you to ask you if you could address or provide uh, your responses to a couple of these. So reasons opposed uh, to reparations you cite, and I, I'll just note a few that I think maybe are more uh, obvious. Uh, white America has already paid its debt via the Civil War. Uh, blacks have already been compensated via affirmative action. Um, uh, and then, of course, this the standard uh, trope perpetuates a crippling psychology of victimization amongst blacks. So these and probably five or six others you uh, uh, pose and then answer. How could can you respond to some of the at least one or two that you find the most um, persistent? I want to address the the, the comment about the, the criticism about the Civil War. Um, so first of all, um, you know, almost half of the people who fought the Civil War fought to uh, preserve slavery. You know, so you can't just talk about uh, the Civil War as being this universal plus, uh, you know, uh, in terms of support for uh, for Black Americans. And you mentioned in your introduction, compensated emancipation. Uh, this was a program that Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and many abolitionists proposed time and time again, uh, and others actually even the previous century, uh, in the 1700s, uh, whereby uh, the folks who owned human chattel would be paid uh, a market rate for those individuals uh, in exchange for freeing them. And uh, we know that the only, uh, the only jurisdiction that ever agreed to compensated emancipation was the District of Columbia. Um, you know, President Lincoln had, a, had numerous meetings, uh, even, at the, uh, even into the, 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 the last days of the Civil War, with Confederate leaders trying to convince them to accept payment for their enslaved people, and they refused. Um, but one can only think that, you know, can only imagine how many lives would have been saved uh, had the South agreed, had the Confederates agreed to compensate emancipation. Um, you know, it would have, it, the war might not have needed to be fought at all, and slavery would have ended. Uh, but I think it's really important for us to be aware of this history. It's not something that is really emphasized much in history uh, classes. And we were, uh, you know, during the research on From Here to Equality, were very intrigued to learn just how determinately uh, Lincoln and others pushed for a program of competition and education that was not, um, was not heated. Yeah, two other points that are related to that. Uh, a significant portion of the Union Army toward the end of the war consisted of black Americans who had been enslaved themselves. And so they fought on behalf of their own liberation. So uh, the Civil War as a, as, a, as a process 
was not exclusively a gift that was handed over to black Americans because black Americans were actively involved in the defense of the union and, uh, and their own emancipation from slavery. Uh, and then, uh, you know, an additional point to be made about that is the notion that ending a harm constitutes an act of reparations is really quite misleading. Uh, if you end a harm, that is not the equivalent of compensating the individuals who have been harmed for the damages that they have incurred. And so uh, stopping slavery is not the equivalent of compensating for slavery. But moreover, we are concerned not exclusively with the harms of slavery, but with a host of atrocities that took place after slavery ended that have contributed to this enormous racial wealth differential that we observe today. Uh, with respect to affirmative action as reparations, uh, affirmative action is a means of executing uh, an anti-discrimination initiative, which is, again, ending a harm, but it is not compensating for the harm. So uh, to the extent that affirmative action reduces or mitigates the degree of discrimination in the U.S. economy, that is something that's valuable but it is not the equivalent of providing compensation for the damages that have taken place as a consequence of discrimination. And then finally, with respect to this victim psychology issue, uh, we've actually heard a number of, of black Americans who are among the 30% or so who oppose reparations make that argument that they uh, that they feel like it preserves the victim psychology. And I guess our position is that they don't have to accept reparations payments. It's not mandatory. If we have a reparations program in place, any individual who's eligible to receive it could choose to refuse the funds. So if they feel so desperately that they're going to be damaged emotionally by taking reparations, then simply don't leave the money for others who do not feel so psychologically damaged. Uh, but I would also say that one of the things that we've discovered in literature about sexual assault and the like is that the last thing that you should do is ignore it. Uh, and, the, and the most important thing to do is to generate an acknowledgement and some form of restitution for the individuals who've been victimized. And we don't see it as being any different in the context of this type of an atrocity. Uh, thank you. So uh, you do note in the volume that 10% of union forces uh, were black men. And per uh, Professor Darity, your, one of your uh, responses just given, you do cite the famous uh, Malcolm X line, uh, which you reminded me when you when you just spoke about uh, pulling the the um, the knife nine inches in by out by three inches. I'll just note HR um, uh, forty again. This was introduced by Conyers four Congresses ago. Now being carried by Shelia Jackson from Texas, uh, and this is a resolution on this matter. Uh, there were some hearings on this. So I'll just leave it at that. Let's go with our remaining time. And you did note. Uh, dollars, but your last chapter does unpack or provide several ways to calculate um, an amount. Uh, I would think I counted at least half a dozen, I believe. What would you say is probably the, the most preferential uh, way to calculate this? 
And again, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't follow by asking, what do you think are the prospects uh, for us making progress on this, say, uh, this Congress or in the near future? So for us, the primary goal of the reparations movement is the elimination of the racial wealth gap. And as we said earlier, uh, when you're, you're talking about the wealth gap, this is something that has been many, many years in the making. Um, and, um, you know, we're talking about $850,000 on average per household. And so this is the, the, the key target. There are many other programs and other initiatives that might also be included in a reparations program, but the elimination of that wealth gap we think is essential. Um, and so, you know, people may say, well, why is that the target? We know that wealth is, um, you know, wealth, wealth is not only, um, you know, something that has been elusive for so many black Americans, but we think about what one can do with wealth, especially, you know, in uh, the face of a pandemic, you know, wealth would enable an individual to purchase a house in um, a high amenity neighborhood to have access to uh, a high quality of health care, to be able to consult legal counsel, to participate in political life in a different way. I mean, you know, basically it provides a kind of insulation for a family. Uh, this is something that might have made a huge difference had Black Americans received restitution before COVID hit. Um, you know, you have a disproportionate number of Black people who are in harm's way, who are in uh, professions that uh, require them to be uh, uh, subjected to a higher level of exposure to COVID um, and with lesser protections. Um, it's not that, you know, black people should be excluded from these occupations, but their, you know, their participation should be proportionate to their existence in the population. You know, wealth is the thing that provides an opportunity for families to plan. You know, when you look at those um, 160-acre land grants that those families received beginning in 1862, and that program lasted for 70 years, actually, uh, you're talking about land that, uh, you know, one could, um, you know, one could farm the land as a tax-free asset. You could subdivide it, use it as collateral for a loan, capitalize a business, pay your child's college tuition, but importantly those individuals could bequeath that land to their children, which many did do. And so, you know, that's what black Americans have not had access to. And that is what a reparations program would, would, would provide for them, you know, equal footing and opportunity to have, you know, to fully have to become full citizens, you know, to, to take uh, control of full citizenship rights, which white Americans have had, but black Americans have been denied. And that is what we are focusing, um, you know, our efforts on. And that is the story that we tell them from here to equality. Thank you, Ms. Mellon. I'll, I'll leave it uh, to you, Professor Darity, for the last word here or last comment, please. So actually, that will be the last word. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 uh, I do want to say that, um, you know, we are encouraged um, by the the data that we're seeing uh, surveys about the changes in attitudes in the United States about uh, reparations and about the racial wealth gap. Uh, as recently as 20 years ago, 
uh, in a survey by uh, Dawson and Popoff, we know that only 4% of white Americans uh, were in favor of shifting the wealth uh, distribution in this country. As recently as two years ago, that number had changed to 16%, right? So moving in the right direction. Then in June of this year, a group of uh, civics uh, conducted a survey, and civics found that over 30% of white Americans favored a reparations program, and a majority, uh, near, almost a majority of younger white Americans were uh, saying, yes, this is something that should happen. So we are encouraged uh, to see these uh, changes in attitudes reflected in these, um, these surveys. I don't know if those uh, those attitude changes are permanent. Um, I do know that in the case of uh, the Holocaust victims, uh, at the point that Germany made the decision to pay restitution to uh, the Holocaust victims, only 11% of the German population was in favor of doing so. Uh, now, we recognize that these are not identical situations at all, and that in the United States, you're going to need a larger percentage of white Americans, especially to be supportive. Um, so, you know, only after we have, you know, a different Congress and different leadership in Congress will this be possible. But we are very much encouraged by the trends that we're seeing and the conversations like the one we're having today. Well, thank you. Thank you for that follow-up. So we're at our time. So I want to say thank you both for this overview of your volume again, From Here to Equality. Again, very helpful. Thank you again so much. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.